You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Hello and welcome to the Black Experience Hour. This is a 60-minute weekly program bringing you news from a variety of sources. This is being recorded on the 21st of October for the listening week that begins the 22nd. Your reader's name is Susan Shirey. I'm going to open this week with articles from a new source for this program, levelman.com. And these articles are written by H. Drew Blackburn. Pardon me, this first one was posted September 2nd. What does West Point's KKK plaque say about America? According to the U.S. News and World Report, there were just under 3,982 degree-granting universities and colleges in the United States during the 2019-2020 school year. Those vary in prestige, location, enrollment, annual cost, and a host of other factors. Out of those nearly 4,000 schools, only five are run by the federal government. Those five colleges all military academies serve one true purpose to prepare young mostly men for service as commissioned officers in the armed forces in effect more than pardon me in effect more so than any other institution of higher learning these schools the students the faculty the campuses the curriculum and every single thing about them are representative of the United States. That's why they're so selective in the first place. Since these truths are self-evident, what does it say about America that its most prestigious federal academy, West Point, has the image of a Ku Klux Klan member on a large bronze plaque? The image is a part of a triptych dedicated to West Point graduates in 1965 and created by Laura Garden Fraser. Each plaque is 11 feet tall and 5 feet wide, featuring a number of symbols and dedications to people who shaped America at that time. The New York Times piece on the matter mentions a few people included. Clara Barton, who founded the American Red Cross. Francis Scott Key, who wrote the National Anthem, and William Lloyd Garrison, an abolitionist and editor of the anti-slavery journal The Liberator, who appears directly above the Klan member. All of the above are part of the American story, yes. However, let's not kid ourselves. This is a proud monument of the past, not an unbiased account of history. It puts Klansmen on the same footing as an abolitionist, who was on the same footing as the person who wrote the racist and slavery-endorsing national anthem. Because Klansmen were soldiers, too. It tells you that the ideas Klansmen believe are endorsed by the federal government, as long as they fight for the country. And maybe a part of what the Ku Klux Klan believes in is essential to what America believes in, too. I 
forgot to mention these these pieces from Level Man are opinion pieces. This next one is Republicans are trying to redefine blackness for political power. Lawmakers want to narrow its definition to support redlining and swing elections in their favor. Some Republicans are trying to limit the parameters by which black people are pardon me are considered black as an ethnic category. Now, before y'all get too giddy, you know they're only doing this for political power, right? According to NPR, as a result of the 2020 census, Republican lawmakers in Alabama and Louisiana are fighting to limit the definition of blackness and curtail voting power. In Louisiana, they want to limit the classification to people who identify as solely black, splitting hairs on racial people's racial mix-up seems like a tall order in one of the country's only true melting pots, a region where the concept of who is black isn't always straightforward thanks to Louisiana's large populations of people with French, Spanish, Afro-Caribbean, and indigenous roots. This is also an interesting change of heart. For centuries in America, particularly in southern states, the one-drop rule has been used to determine racial classification and classify and justify slavery, segregation, housing, and more. Their whims and ideas are obviously moved by whatever gives them the most power. The outcome of a case from Alabama called Merrill v. Milligan which sought to redefine blackness in its original filing, is currently being reviewed by the Supreme Court. This case centers around how much consideration race should be used to determine how electoral districts are drawn. The Supreme Court's findings here will likely set the precedent going forward on the Voting Rights Act. Depending on the ruling, it will either slow conservatives' progress in stripping away voting rights, or give a playbook on how to dismantle them. Black people are not a monolith. It's one of our many proverbs. That's because, for one, there's not one way to act, speak, or dress black. Your interests and your taste buds have no bearing on whether you are black or not. There's also not just one way to look black. We come in many beautiful shades, from albino to creme brulee to deep mahogany. Our heritages span the globe, with different languages, regions, and traditions for us to claim. The diaspora is never-ending, thanks to slavery, colonialism, the one-drop rule, and immigrating from greedy, corrupt countries to slightly less greedy, corrupt countries. This concept of race was designed and proliferated by white people in power. They made their bed. Perhaps it's time to put all this nonsense to rest and just sleep in it. Moving to theroot.com. This next one was written by Kaylin Womack. It was posted on the 21st of October. Black Couples Morning Walk Interrupted by... Negroes for Sale sign. A buck and wenches 
were listed for sale with, quote, excellent cooking skills. While Lant and Nakiba Phillips were taking a walk around town, pardon me, that's around a park in a Houston neighborhood, they were stopped in their tracks by a slaves for sale flyer nailed to a tree, according to Click to Houston. Police are not only trying to find who put the flyer up, but they're also investigating to see if this qualifies as a hate crime. Sunnyside is the oldest historically black neighborhood in the south side of Houston, according to the Texas State Library. Thousands of enslaved black people resided in the region before the Civil War. In 1912, H. H. Holmes plotted the land and founded the community where black people began to settle. Yet, after surviving decades of racist violence and annexation, someone thought it clever to remind the black residents where they came from. The Phillips told reporters they came to Sunnyside Park regularly to walk their lab labs. Pardon me, that's probably labs. It's written as laps. Oh, yeah, that makes sense, too. To walk their laps. Okay, pardon me. Thursday morning, their walk was interrupted by a disturbing blast from the past, the for sale sign for slaves. The flyer read, Great Sale of Negroes. It was dated November 11th, 1855. Underneath listed one buck and two winches with given names, ages, and described as excellent cooks or servants. I was floored, actually. I did see that it was dated 1855, so it seems someone definitely did their history, said Nakiba to Click to Houston. Oh my God, will the tree be on fire tomorrow? Like, what's next? She said. The couple reported the flyer to the park worker who removed it from the tree. However, the perpetrator is still out there, maybe even hanging more flyers. Here are the reactions from Click to Houston. We want them to know those days been over and this not no plantation. This is our home. This is our community. That's how we treat it, and that's how they're going to treat it, said Travis McGee, who is a civic leader with Sunnyside Garden Bayou. Back in April this year, we had a contractor come out and inspected the whole park area to put up surveillance cameras and give city council members the price and stuff, said Tracy Stevens, who is the president of the Sunnyside Civic Club. Houston police say the Criminal Intelligence Division is investigating to try to find out who put the flyer up and whether a hate crime was committed. Our next article was found in the New York Times race-related newsletter, and it was posted October 15th, written by J.C. Fortin. Pawns in a Political Fight when two plane loads of asylum seekers were flown to Martha's Vineyard last month, Paola Denham Jr. recognized an echo of his own experience from six decades ago, one nearly forgotten in the long history of black Americans' struggle for civil rights. What took me back 
recalled Mr. Denham, who is 73, is that when the people got to their destinations, they didn't get what they were promised. The migrants on Martha's Vineyard, who were pr primarily, pardon me, from Venezuela, found themselves repeating history, pawns in a political fight. The promise, as dozens of them would later recount to lawyers and journalists, was of jobs and resettlement help. Instead, they arrived with no warning to the community, which nevertheless scrambled to find them food and shelter. For Mr. Denham, in the spring of 1962, the promise came in the form of bus and train tickets offered to his family and other black Southerners by members of the White Citizens Council, a segregation, pardon me, segregationist group, to take them to northern and western states where many were promised jobs and housing. That's how Mr. Denham, at 12 years old, found himself on the Southern Pacific Railway from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, to Los Angeles, along with his father, stepmother, and nine siblings. They were among a couple hundred participants in what came to be known as the Reverse Freedom Rides, a segregationist political stunt that had ripple effects across generations of black families and whose parallels were noted by historians and others after the migrant flights touched down in Martha's Vineyard. Mr. Denham's memories of his train ride and its origins are hazy. His stepmother, he said, was interested in the tickets because she had relatives in California. He said, My parents coming up the way we came up, and all the hardships we were having in segregated Baton Rouge, I guess that's the reason why they were ready to get out. Mr. Denham remembers a rush of reporters approaching the family when the train made a stop in Texas, telling his parents that their tickets had been paid for by racists, which he said surprised and upset them. Mr. Denham also remembers arriving at a Los Angeles train station where the family was again mobbed by reporters. Clive Webb, a professor of American history at the University of Sussex, said the reverse freedom rides concocted in response to the freedom rides organized by civil rights groups to challenge segregation on interstate buses attracted plenty of media attention at the time but have since been largely overlooked. In a 2004 paper on the subject, he estimated that more than 200 black southerners took the free tickets. But the Martha's Vineyard flights, along with the busing of Central American migrants to the vice president's residence in Washington last month, dredged the reverse freedom rides back into public consciousness. A letter signed by some House Democrats accused the Republican governors, who arranged the trips, of using the same ploys as the segregationists of 1962, while the Biden administration accused them of using the migrants as political pawns. No historical parallel is ever precise, said Dr. Webb, of the comparisons between the migrant trips and the reverse freedom rides, but it was a cheap publicity stunt in the early 60s, and this is a publicity stunt, too. The migrants taken to Martha's Vineyards on flights arranged by Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida had recently crossed the southwestern U.S. border without authorization and turned themselves in to border officials to seek asylum, with many saying they had fled violence at home. 
The migrants who were dropped at Vice President Kamala Harris's home the same week, on buses sent from Texas by Governor Greg Abbott, were from Colombia, Cuba, Guyana, Nicaragua, and Panama, and came into the country in the same manner. A spokeswoman for Mr. Abbott called comparisons of transporting migrants to high-profile destinations with the reverse freedom rides is, quote, a garbage attempt to deflect from the hypocrisy of Democratic mayors. Representatives of Mr. DeSantis did not respond to requests for comment. Those attention-getting moments were an escalation of a tactic being used by Southern officials this year to shift the problems of border crossings onto northern states. Since the spring, Texas and Arizona have provided thousands of undocumented migrants with bus rides to northern cities, including New York, Chicago, and Washington, taxing those cities' capacities to provide emergency food and housing. Mayor Eric Adams of New York recently declared a state of emergency and called for state and federal funding to help pay for housing and services for the migrants. Arizona officials described the state's chartered buses as a humanitarian project, distinct from the efforts of Texas and Florida, and said that the roughly 2,000 migrants who traveled from there to Washington this year had been vetted to ensure they wanted to go east and knew where they were headed. Unlike the reverse freedom riders who were from the American South, Many of the migrants who boarded buses this year had no personal ties to the U.S. border towns they departed from. Many had since connected with family members in the cities where they arrived, or begun to put down roots far from the southern border. All of this feels familiar to Dolores Dalus, pardon me, who is 88, a longtime civil rights activist in Massachusetts. In May of 1962, she learned that dozens of black Southerners had taken a reverse freedom ride bus, pardon me, bus ride, from Arkansas to Hyannis, Massachusetts, where she lived. Segregationists chose the spot because it was close to where President John F. Kennedy and his family vacationed. Ms. Deleuze rushed downtown to find the bewildered travelers. They said that their governor had sent them down there and told them that Kennedy would be there waiting for them with jobs and housing, she said. Of course, there was no such thing. Like the residents of Martha's Vineyard did for the migrants last month, Miss Deleuze and other residents of Hyannis scrambled to help the travelers find food and shelter, she said. But opportunities in Hyannis were limited and many of them eventually scattered across New England. I've seen this movie before, so I'm not really surprised that it's happening again, said Miss Deleuze. It's just disheartening, like we've got to go back and do it all over again. The White Citizens Council was fighting a losing battle for public support in the 1960s when members came up with the reverse freedom rides as a, quote, public relations exercise that would at once politically embarrass their northern liberal critics and thereby reestablish their support among white Southerners, according to Dr. Webb's account. The destinations which included New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Redwood Falls, Minnesota, and Pocatello, Idaho, were chosen because they were home to politicians who had supported integration. We are telling the North to put up or shut up, said George Singleman, 
an architect of the rides. The organization alerted news media outlets in order to attract coverage, but much of it was critical. The New York Times described the stunt as cheap trafficking in human misery on the part of Southern racists. Dr. Webb found that some Southern segregationist news outlets also condemned the tactic. One New Orleans station called it sick sensationalism, and a Gallup poll published in June 1962 suggested widespread public disapproval. For those who took the free tickets, the reverse freedom rights can be a sensitive subject. At the time, some civil rights activists urged the writers not to go. After arriving in Los Angeles, Mr. Denham remembers staying with his family at a hotel and then moving to a public housing project in the city before finally settling at a home in Compton. He remembers hot and sunny days in California where he attended his first integrated school and made friends of different races. He remembers long evenings when he and his siblings would play outside, grateful for the chill of the Santa Ana winds. Sometimes they would fall asleep on the lawn, he said, until his father returned home from a night shift to wake them up. He said, we just tried to make a life out there, adding that while it wasn't perfect, he was happy. Many of the reverse freedom riders ultimately went back home, including Mr. Denham, who spent a few years in California before his father split from his stepmother and brought him back to Louisiana. He now lives in Destrahan, which is on the edge of New Orleans. His parents have died, but he still remembers... Oh, pardon me. His parents have died, but he still has many family members in Louisiana, as well as two sisters to remain in California. Sometimes, he said, they try to convince him to move back west. Our next one was published by the Associated Press and comes via the Boulder Daily Camera. It was written by Kimberly Crucy and posted on the 21st. Dateline Nashville, Tennessee. Slavery on the Ballot for Voters in Five States More than 150 years after slaves were freed in the U.S., voters in five states will soon decide whether to close loopholes that led to the proliferation of a different form of slavery, forced labor by people convicted of certain crimes. None of the proposals would force immediate changes inside the state's prisons, though they could lead to legal challenges related to how they use prison labor, a lasting imprint of slavery's legacy on the entire United States. The effort is part of a national push to amend the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution that banned enslavement or involuntary servitude except as a form of criminal punishment. That exception has long permitted the exploitation of labor by convicted felons. The idea that you could ever finish the sentence, Slavery's okay when, has to rip out your soul, and I think it's what makes this a fight that ignores political lines and brings us together, because it feels so clear, said Bianca Tylek, executive director of Worth Rises, a criminal justice advocacy group pushing to remove the amendment's convict labor clause. 
Nearly 20 states have constitutions that include language permitting slavery and involuntary servitude as criminal punishments. In 2018, Colorado was the first to remove the language from its founding frameworks by ballot measure, followed by Nebraska and Utah two years later. This November, versions of the question go before voters in Alabama, Louisiana, Oregon, Tennessee, and Vermont. Senator Ramesh Akbari, a Democrat from Memphis, was shocked when a fellow lawmaker told her about the slavery exception in the Tennessee Constitution and immediately began working to replace the language. She said, When I found out that this exception existed, I thought, We have got to fix this, and we've got to fix this right away. Our Constitution should reflect the values and the beliefs of our state. Constitutions require lengthy and technically tricky steps before they can be tweaked. Akbari first proposed changes in 2019. The GOP-dominant General Assembly then had to pass the changes by a majority vote in one two-year legislative period, and then pass it again with at least two-thirds approval in the next. The amendment could then go to the ballot in the year of the next gubernatorial election. Akbari also had to work with the State Department of Corrections to ensure that inmate labor wouldn't be prohibited under her proposal. The proposed language going before Tennessean voters more clearly distinguishes between the two. Quote, Slavery and involuntary servitude are forever prohibited. Nothing in this section shall prohibit an inmate from working when the inmate has been duly convicted of a crime. We understand that those who are incarcerated cannot be forced to work without pay, but we should not create a situation where they won't be able to work at all, said Akbari. Similar concerns over the financial impact of prison labor led California's Democratic-led legislature to reject an amendment eliminating indentured servitude as a possible punishment for crime after Governor Gavin Newsom's administration predicted it could require the state to pay billions of dollars at minimum wage to prison inmates. Scrutiny over prison labor has existed for decades, but the 13th Amendment's loophole, in particular, encouraged former Confederate states after the Civil War to devise new ways to maintain the dynamics of slavery. They used restrictive measures known as the Black Codes, because they nearly always targeted black people, to criminalize benign interactions such as talking too loudly or not yielding on the sidewalk. Those targeted would end up in custody for minor actions, effectively enslaving them again. Fast forward to today. Many incarcerated workers make pennies on the dollar, which isn't expected to change if the proposals succeed, Inmates who refuse to work may be denied phone calls or visits with family, punished with solitary confinement, and even be denied parole. Alabama is asking voters to delete all racist language from its constitution and to remove and replace a section on convict labor that's similar to what Tennessee has had in its constitution. Vermont often boasts of being the first state in the nation to ban slavery in 1777, but its constitution still allows involuntary servitude in a handful of circumstances, 
Its proposed change would replace the current exception clause with language saying, quote, Slavery and involuntary servitude are forever prohibited in this state. Oregon's purpose, pardon me, Oregon's proposed change repeals its exception clause while adding language allowing a court or a probation or parole agency to order alternatives to incarceration as part of sentencing. Louisiana is the only state so far to have its proposed amendment draw organized opposition. Over concerns that the replacement language may make matters worse, even one of its original sponsors has second thoughts. Democratic Representative Edmund Jordan told the Times-Picayune and New Orleans Advocate last week that he's urging voters to reject it. The Nonprofit Council for a Better Louisiana warned that the wording could technically permit slavery again, as well as continue involuntary servitude. Louisiana's Constitution now says, quote, Slavery and involuntary servitude are prohibited, except in the latter case as punishment for a crime. The amendment would change that to slavery and involuntary servitude pardon me, are permitted, parentheses, but this, close parentheses, does not apply to the otherwise lawful administration of criminal justice. The amendment is an example of why it is so important to get the language right when presenting constitutional amendments to voters, said the nonprofit group in a statement urging voters to choose no and lawmakers to try again, pointing to Tennessee's ballot language as a possible template. Supporters of the amendment say such criticisms are part of a campaign to keep exception clauses in place. If this doesn't pass... It will be used as a weapon against us, said Max Parthas, State Operations Director for the Abolish Slavery National Network. The question stands as a reminder of how slavery continues to bedevil Americans, and Parthas says that's reason enough to vote yes. We've never seen a single day in the United States where slavery was not legal, he said. We want to see what that looks like, and I think that's worth it. And moving back to the New York Times, it's never too late to pivot from NFL safety to neurosurgeon. When Myron Roll was cut from the Pittsburgh Steelers, he fell into a funk until his mother reminded him of his two childhood dreams, play football, then become a neurosurgeon. It was time for Plan B. This was published October 11th. Written by Elena Bergeron. It's Never Too Late is a new series that tells the stories of people who decide to pursue their dreams on their own terms. It had been one month without football for Myron Roll, an NFL safety, and he was floundering. Mr. Roll was just 25, and his pro football career looked grim. He was released in 2011 after three unremarkable seasons with the Tennessee Titans and had failed in his attempt to make the Pittsburgh Steelers roster. Without the structure and rigor of a football career, he struggled to make sense of what would come next. But he had always had a plan B. He had been a hot-tempered kid, but at 11, his older brother, Marshawn, pardon me, that's Marshawn, gave him a copy of Gifted Hands, 
Dr. Ben Carson's popular 1990 memoir that detailed how Dr. Carson went from being an inner-city youth with poor grades to the director of pediatric neurosurgery at Johns Hopkins University Hospital. After reading that, Mr. Rowley stopped beating up classmates who called him racist slurs or made fun of his Bahamian immigrant parents and started chasing two dreams— being a pro football player, and becoming a neurosurgeon like Dr. Carson. He flourished, playing as a defensive back for Florida State, where he was selected to be a Rhodes Scholar in 2009. Though he studied medical anthropology at Oxford as part of the program, Mr. Raleigh said his neurosurgeon dream was dormant while he pursued football glory. In England, he trained for the NFL draft and was selected by the Titans in 2010. But Mr. Rowe's football dream did not go as planned. Though he was competitive in practices, he never played in an NFL regular season game, and the Titans parted ways with him once his contract was up. He tried to make the Pittsburgh Steelers roster, but was cut before the 2012 season. Not yet ready to quit football, he returned home to New Jersey, where he languished until his mother, Beverly, shook him out of his funk. Showing him his grade school notebook where he had written both goals, he recalled, she looked me straight in the eyes and pointed at the first one. This one's done. And she looked at the second one and said, now we need to do this. Today, he is Dr. Raw, and at 35, he is in the sixth year of his neurosurgery, pardon me, neurosurgery residency at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital. Those words of encouragement, her belief in me, her thoughtfulness, her disposition during that moment was just what I needed, just what I needed to move forward to the next chapter in my life, he said. And the following is a portion of an interview they conducted. What do you think propels you forward? I believe that God placed me for such a time as this to be a beacon of hope, a light, a mentor, and an advocate. I was on the front lines when COVID hit and got on TV to speak about black and brown disparities in health care. I was placed here to be a father to my four children and a husband to my wife, Latoya. There's an idea that motivates me, too. There's so many people that sacrificed for me, names that I know, names that I don't know, to be where I am right now, that have given up their lives for me to be able to vote to have an education, to attend certain schools, to have certain jobs, to be able to immigrate to America. It's our job now to repay that debt with being the best we can be in everything that we do. I take that very, very seriously. What would you tell people who feel like they're stuck in their lives and still want to pursue a dream? One, it's never too late. Two, you're needed. You're still needed in this life. Your lane can be yours, and it's for you. What God has for you is going to be for you. Perfect it. Hone it. Be a master of it. Love it. Do it well. Impact people when you do it, and help bring somebody up with you. And what's next? I'm in year six of seven of my neurosurgery residency, and I have to do another year of pediatric neurosurgical fellowship. 
My long-term goal is to practice neurosurgery in America for the majority of the year and then spend a portion of the year back home in the Caribbean developing neurosurgical services in the Bahamas and in all the member states of CARICOM, an organization of Caribbean countries. And still with the New York Times for another take on success, the Knapp Bishop is spreading the good word. Rest. Tricia Hershey, Hersey, perhaps, pardon me, founder of the Knapp Ministry, sees rest as a revolutionary way to push back on America's obsession with productivity at all costs. This was published October 13th and written by Melanice McAfee. Pardon me for mispronouncing possibly that name. Melanice. Melanice. Dateline Atlanta. Tricia Hersey was bone-tired. Between studying theology in a competitive seminar program at Emory University, working on campus, doing an internship and raising a young son, she couldn't catch a moment's rest. Having sold her car to afford graduate school, commuting on three buses and a train was just another time suck. Any, three, any free minutes was devoted to study, but in her exhaustion she often had to re-read passages to fully absorb their meaning. Her grades suffered, her health flagged, something had to give. Reading on the sofa at home, she'd frequently find the book falling to her chest as she allowed herself a few minutes to rest. She would wake up feeling renewed, and so she began to build moments of respite into her days, no matter how busy, napping wherever and whenever she could, in bed, on the sofa, on benches, in between classes. She'd had enough of the grind, so she slept or emptied her head with something that felt like rest. A long bath, meditating on the train, deliberate daydreaming. This proved pivotal. She felt better, her mind cleared, her grades improved. If Even if rest came at the expense of time she would typically devote to study or work, Hersey was determined to commit to it and in the process to push back on what she, a black woman, saw as a legacy of forced labor and exhaustion that her ancestors had endured. I was exhausted physically, mentally, spiritually, and I just didn't see any other way except to take a radical leap and say, I don't care, let the chips fall where they may, she said during a recent interview. If I fail out of school, that's fine. If I don't finish that grade, because I'm going to bed... That epiphany happened nearly a decade ago, and in the intervening years, she has turned her personal transformation into a movement. Hersey, now 48, began inviting people to nap collectively while she offered soothing sermons about the sheer power of sleep and dreaming. She shared the notion that rest is resistance. With a growing and enthusiastic group of, vol pardon me, group of followers, both in person and online, who were also weary of the grind. Thus, the Knapp Ministry was born, and Hersey anointed herself its Knapp Bishop. She urges followers to use time they might otherwise devote to extra work to sleeping instead, the stretches they'd spend staring at a screen to staring into space. 
tense moments given over to worry about disappointing others would be better spent reflecting on our own needs and comforts, she said. It's about collectively refusing to run ourselves into the ground. People who took her advice have decided to quit a job, embark on a sabbatical, or slow down the growth of a business venture in service of their own mental and physical well-being, said Hersey. While some of us are only just catching on to concepts like quiet quitting and soft life, Hersey has spent years preaching the gospel of rest and divesting from corporate and academic pressures. The endeavor has exploded since the start of the pandemic, when her online platform began growing by tens and thousands of followers a day. Hersey gives talks across the country and offers coaching services to people looking to stave off burnout. With nearly half a million followers on Instagram and more on other platforms, social media has been an effective bullhorn for her ideas. However, she often rails against it, blaming it for many of modern society's anxieties and ills. Online dispatches from the Knapp Bishop, which she writes and designs herself, can be gentle. If you are not resting, you will not make it. I need you to make it. Or prodding. Aren't y'all bored with working all the time? Or both. You will have to rest to believe in this message. You won't be able to retweet or meme design your way to freedom from grind culture. Percy calls the Knapp Bishop's tone tender rage and says that is by design. She wants to jar people enough to wake up and sleep. Hersey and her grassroots crusade are having a coming-out party of sorts. Her first book, Rest is Resistance, a manifesto, debuts this week. The Knapp Ministry's new event space, dubbed The Rest Temple, and housed in a little-used Presbyterian church in Atlanta's Grant Park neighborhood, will host collective napping, daydreaming, and spiritual coaching sessions. Grind culture has normalized pushing our bodies to the brink of destruction, she writes. We proudly proclaim showing up to work or an event despite an injury, sickness, or mental break. We are praised and rewarded for ignoring our body's need for rest, care, and repair. The Knapp Ministry is not a religious movement, she said, but a spiritual antidote to the very earthly problems that are plaguing communities, exhaustion, chronic diseases, and mental health crisis, issues she sees as arising from systems of capitalism and white supremacism. Indeed, the concept of getting sufficient rest for good health is not new, and it's well known that black people are operating under a dangerous sleep deficit in America. In a 2020 survey of behavioral habits, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention found that nearly 44% of black adults reported having short sleep duration, which is defined as less than seven hours per night, compared with 31% of white adults. Lack of rest is correlated with conditions such as heart disease, diabetes, and high blood pressure, diseases that disproportionately affect black people. While Hersey holds degrees in public health and divinity, she's an artist at heart, her passion for writing and performance blossomed while she was growing up on Chicago's South Side, and she went on to study theater, writing, and puppetry, and taught poetry classes in the city's public school system. 
She approaches the notion of collective rest as a form of performance art, incorporating elements of black liberation theology, Afrofuturism, and poetry into her messaging. She said, yes, it's about literal naps, but it's also about imagination work, justice work. It's about education. We need to understand what the systems are doing to us so that we can resist in a way that is fruitful for us. Staging collective napping and daydreaming events around the country, Hersey has invited strangers to lie down next to one another on pillows and yoga mats and let their tensions dissipate in what can look like a prolonged savasana, guiding them with warm exhortations about their divine right to rest. The events may be accompanied by a sound bath, a curated playlist, or the gentle plucking of a live harpist. Inevitably, someone wakes up crying, explaining how profound it feels to give themselves permission to rest. The events attract a mix of first-timers and repeat attendees. The focus of Hersey's talks varies. It may be a dive into the work of feminist writer Bell Hooks, or prolonged incantation about the effects of colonialism on rest. Participants come away soothed, say several, in the knowledge that they are not lazy for needing rest. Especially after COVID-19 forced us all to slow down a bit, I found myself questioning for the first time, ever, why, and for whom, I and my peers are working so hard often to the detriment of our mental and physical health, and how that can not only be normalized, but also glorified, said Devin Gates, who is 21. Gates, who is a student at both Harvard College and Berkeley College of Music, was so inspired by the NAP Ministry's message that she reached out and secured an internship with Hersey in her hometown of Atlanta. But prioritizing rest isn't always easy or natural, there's a very real kind of withdrawn, pardon me, a real kind of withdrawal from our collective addiction to productivity that starts to come for you on a no-joke level when you begin to employ these alternate strategies, said Helen Hale, 37, a longtime friend of Hersey's and the creative director of the NAP Ministry. She went on, I have spent some real time thrashing around with the layers of conditioning that make it so hard to detached, pardon me, to detach from our supremacist capitalist systems. Rest can also feel like a privilege, and many people tell Hersey they can't afford to lie down when there are bills to pay. She acknowledges that many see walking away from obligations as unrealistic but counters that devoting even one spare moment to rest is worthwhile and a practice that can build, pardon me, and it is a practice that can be built on over time. A Legacy of Exhaustion Hersey's point of view was inspired in part by studying slave testimony, two centuries of letters, speeches, interviews, and autobiographies while working in an archive library at Emory. In reading these stories about the brutal origins of American capitalism, she realized that working to exhaustion was part of her inheritance, passed down through ancestors distant and recent. Her father, Willie, who worked for Union Pacific Railroad, 
While helping to lead a church and devoting time to community activism, rarely took a moment to himself. She is certain that, beyond the heart disease and diabetes that precipitated his early death, it was overwork that killed him at 55. Hersey was inspired in a different way by her maternal grandmother, Ora. As busy as she was with work and child-rearing, Ora took a half hour each day to shut her eyes and meditate on the sofa. A young Hersey would tiptoe through the house to avoid disturbing her. It was an early lesson in the power of resisting outside demands in service of oneself. At her book launch party held on Sunday at the Rest Temple, Hersey, dressed in a billowy yellow evening robe and gold halo, called out the names of her elders in tribute. At one end of the sanctuary was an altar built on red clay soil and scattered with raw cotton blossoms and photos of departed family members, including her father. Hersey's inspiration and imagery lie in the legacy of the enslaved and their descendants, but the Knapp Ministry's message isn't directed only at black people, she said. She sees the treatment of black and indigenous people as a bellwether for how justly society is functioning overall, and stressed that everyone would benefit from questioning attitudes around work and productivity. Even in the midst of rapid growth on all fronts, Hersey doesn't hesitate to take month-long digital Sabbaths, which is breaks from her social media and the many demands coming her way, and she encourages her followers to do the same. She guards her time preciously, penciling in naps, meditation, and rejuvenation through walks or pampering rituals. I judge success by how many naps I took in a week, and how many times I told somebody no, how many boundaries I upheld, she said. To me, that's justice, that's liberation, that's freedom. Returning to theroot.com, here's some COVID news. Written by Candace McDuffie, posted on the 20th. Here's why white people are now more likely to die from COVID than black folks. A new article by the Washington Post examines the change. A new report by the Washington Post examines the change in COVID-19 mortality that started in October 2021. From the beginning of the pandemic, the racial disparity between black and white folks dying from the coronavirus was substantial. Black people were more than three times as likely to die from COVID as their white counterparts. This quote from the Washington Post, a post-analysis of COVID death data from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention from April 2020 through this summer found the racial disparity vanished at the end of last year, becoming roughly equal. And at times during that same period, the overall age-adjusted death rate for white people slightly surpassed that of black and Latino people. End quote. Black people were more likely to succumb to the disease because underlying health conditions like diabetes, high blood pressure, and obesity affect us early in life, pardon me, earlier in life, and at higher rates than white folks, 
However, the fall of 2021 marked the first time the gap reversed with black rates of COVID mortality lower than white rates. In addition, the virus is more vicious with unvaccinated adults, which statistics show are more likely to be Republicans, which leads to higher rates of both infection and death. On the surface, the reason COVID death rates have flipped is because white conservatives choose not to be vaccinated and look at prevention methods, such as wearing masks, as an impediment to personal freedom. This is true, but it turns out to be more complex than that. Data shows that more than 90% of COVID deaths occur in people 50 years and up, and white people are disproportionately older. According to the Post, more than 40% of white people are age 50 or older, but less than 30% of black people are in those older age groups. Hispanics are even younger, with less than 25% in the age 50 or older group. It is important to note, though, black rates have been higher than white rates in the major coronavirus surges, especially with the Omicron variant. And um, turning to the Black Enterprise, well, pardon me, that's not the, but blackenterprise.com, a source we haven't read from in quite a while. This article was posted October 21st, written by Derek Major. National Urban League Campaign Prepares Black Americans for Midterm Elections. It's no secret that Republican-led states are trying to suppress the votes of black people, but the National Urban League is making sure voters are prepared with its Reclaim Your Vote campaign. The Reclaim Your Vote campaign is making sure black voters have the information and documents needed to vote in the midterm elections. Additionally, the campaign provides a checklist and events that people can participate in or volunteer at before the big day. Since Joe Biden won the 2020 presidential election, numerous GOP-led states have filed election restriction laws on early voting, drop boxes, and absentee voting. Some of the bills have made it illegal to provide food and water to voters waiting in line. Florida and Georgia have even given police the power to investigate and arrest people at polling locations. Reclaim Your Vote has a bevy of digital tools where users can find out if they're registered to vote, polling locations and hours, and a list of each state's voter ID laws to help them avoid legal trouble and ensure their choices count. Users can scan the QR codes on the campaign's main page for more information. There's a lot online in this year's midterm elections as Republicans continue to push their agendas, which includes school choice, the end of abortions, and blocking Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. Meanwhile, the midterms give Democrats a chance to gain more seats in the House and in the Senate to combat climate change, continue fighting the COVID-19 pandemic, and manage rising inflation. This year's midterm elections feature 19 black candidates, 
the most black candidates in an election in U.S. history. Notable includes our Georgia Senator Raphael Warnock, Arkansas gubernatorial candidate Chris Jones, Maryland gubernatorial candidate Wes Moore, and Florida senatorial candidate senatorial pardon me candidate Val Demings. Reclaim Your Vote also has information about where you can volunteer and become involved in the democratic process. That's found at nul.org that stands for National Urban League nul.org slash reclaim dash your dash vote that brings me to the end of our time thank you for joining us this week for the black experience hour AINC programming is made possible by the William O'Rourke Foundation providing financial support to organizations devoted to promoting vision services if you enjoyed this program Please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.